Good morning. Making sure I'm on. Okay, yes, I am. I hear it. Do you hear me? I, I, I hear me too. That's good. As, as we're kind of going through our book of Romans, we're moving into chapter 7 uh, today. And we're going to discover a lot of different things. Um, as, as we look in the past, the recent uh, chapters we've gone through, we've discovered that somehow, because of what Christ has done for us, we have been set free from our obligation to the law as of what Christ has redeemed us, and we have a new relationship. But that brings to me a question. Are we still under obligation to obey God's laws, or can we do what we want, right? And so he's been asked those questions, and he's responded to them. But if, if we're, we need to say, yes, we are under obligation to obey God's laws, even though we're Christians, even though we have been set free from that. And Paul is going to let us know why, and we get into chapter 7 here. But in order for us to fully understand the concept of that, I want to take us back through just briefly what he's written from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6 to help us get this understanding as we dig into chapter 7. All right? The first six chapters, in, in chapter 1, Paul states that uh, his purpose in writing them is to introduce himself to them in Rome and his thinking about Christ and, and how they are to live as Christians. And he introduces his theme in the first 17 verses, and it culminizes itself or comes to a, a big fruition at verse 16 and 17 when he says that he's not ashamed of this message, this gospel, because it is the power of Christ. It is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now, in this gospel message, he says, is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith and in all of this it is the aspect is that the righteous person will then live by faith so becoming a christian still impacts the way and the manner in which we live now in chapter 1 verses 18 through chapter 3 verses 23 paul is going to indicate that that everybody has sinned whether you're a Jewish person or whether you're a Gentile person. It doesn't matter. Your background genealogically, historically, area, location-wise, everybody in our world has sinned. That's who we are. And as a result of that, he then comes down to, in chapter 3, verse 24 and 26, and he states that the heart of the gospel is the sacrificial death of Jesus to set us free from the bondage of sin. And so, and, and it begins to us this gift of righteousness that comes to us by faith. And then in chapter 3, beginning in verse 27, through chapter 4, verse 25, it shows us the magnitude of this redemption and how it has impacted everybody, that it is not being selective to just the Jewish people, but that the world has the opportunity to find salvation in Jesus if they will put their faith in Him. 
Then we move into chapter 5, and in the first 11 verses of chapter 5, he adds to that the promise of justification and redemption, the effects of what salvation does to us by reconciling us to Christ and reconciling us into a relationship with God. And then he goes on to point out some radical differences there in the rest of that chapter between Adam and what he brought into this world, which was sin and ultimately death, and then what the second Adam, or Christ does by bringing into this world salvation and life. Then we find ourselves coming into chapter 6 and 7 where Paul is going to deal with some questions that are asked there. And really chapter 6, he's kind of looked at a few of those and, and they were laid out. And the question first off was, you know, how all does this work in my life? Shall I go on sinning so that grace can increase? Because don't we want more grace of God, Right? So should I just keep on sinning so that I get more grace? And his answer really was an emphatic, no, you can't do that. And then he answers another question as well. Shall we sin because we're not under law but we're under grace? And so the last part of chapter 6, he tells us again, no, you can't do that. Once you have accepted Christ, that's done. It's, it's, it's done away with. It's no, no longer a part of our lives. And so he says Christ is victorious in all of this by conquering death and coming back to life. And when we unite with him, we have the ability as well to conquer death and unite with him in his life. And so he says it's a turning point for us from death to life that is entered into in this agreement of faith that we have in him that his authority and his power over death and hell can be shared with us, that he has redeemed us by what he has done. So Paul has already established that he and his readers in Rome are living under this new reality that they are dead to sin and alive to Christ. So, as he begins to look here in chapter 7, we need to begin to ask some questions again. He keeps talking about sin. And if we've buried it and put it in the past, and he keeps talking about law and we seem to have disengaged from it because we have engaged with Christ, why does he keep bringing this up? Is he still talking about us from the past tense as to where we were or where we are today? And how does this work in our life today? So I, I think there are a couple things we need to look at. The first four verses of chapter 7, Paul is going to tell us that Christians have been set free from the law. And he's going to explain how that happens. How have we been set free from the law, but yet somehow have an obligation to it? So let's look at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married man is bound by law, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ 
so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now Paul is talking with, he says, those who know the law. In other words, he's talking about people who understand how the law works. So how does the law work? I mean, what, is it, what does it do for, the, for us? Well, well, one way the law works is it applies to anybody who is living. When you're no longer living, the law is irrelevant to you. It, it has no, no reference point for you because you can't obey it and you can't disobey it. So it's done away with. How does that apply to us here in chapter 7? Well, Romans chapter 6, Paul has just told us that he's informed us that a death has occurred in our lives, and it applies to us, namely our death, when we were united with Jesus in baptism into his name, into his death, and his resurrection. We died to ourself. We can no longer live in sin. And so he says there was a death that occurred. That death, then, he is going to speak to us about here in chapter 1, because the law only dominates those who are living in sin. Now, he's not speaking to us about our physical death. He's talking about our, a spiritual death, a death to our sinful life. He uses the word kurioo, kurioo, which means to lord over or to rule or to dominate. And as we've already discussed in the past, the law's authority only applies to a person as long as they're alive. Once they die, the law has no power over them. But yet Paul is talking about the context not of a physical death, but of a death to sin, a death to self is what he's looking at here. Now, most sinners hate the law because it limits them. It, it, it confines them. It, it keeps them from doing what they want to do. And so laws are put in place, and we say, I don't like that. And so we try to skirt the law. We try to go around the law. We try to usurp the law. We try to bend the law. We try to find a loophole in the law so we can do what we want to do. And our court systems are filled with people who are always trying to do things above and beyond what the law is going to permit them to do. Now, it's kind of like a criminal who's under arrest. And he's confined in the back seat of the police cruiser because he's been caught doing something he shouldn't do. And so he's back there, he's yelling and screaming and kicking and banging his head against the window because he wants out. He doesn't want to be confined. He wants to do what he wants to do, and you should not have the ability to stop him from doing that. It's like that ball and chain that, that, that we used to have on the old work gangs because that way it would hinder them from taking off and running, right? And so we, we don't like the law because it confines us. And we want to fight against it the best we can. But it weighs us down. And when we're in this sinful state, we hate it with a passion. But one of Paul's main points in chapter 6 is that as Christians, we have died to sin. So he tells us that in verse 2 and verse 7 and verse 11 of chapter 6. Our death to sin, he says, sets us free from the negative connotations of the law and what it will bring with us. And so here in chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, he throws this illustration out about marriage to help us understand a little bit more about this law and how it works. 
He isn't trying to give a full description or an understanding of what marriage and divorce is like. He's just using this as an illustration to help us see how we have been released from it. All right? So what, what does this have to have here? If, if one of the people dies in this marriage relationship, he says, let's say the husband dies, then the wife then is free to get married again, right? But if her husband is still alive and she decides that she's going to move in with another fella and make up a relationship with him, she's an adulteress. As long as he's alive, she can't do that. I think, remember, remember our marriage vows? I promise to love and to honor and to cherish you in sickness and in health, you know, in, in, in poverty and in wealth, as long as we both shall live, right, until death separates us. Because the vow is a lifetime commitment in marriage. But when one dies, you're free from that. And then you can remarry again. So this is what he's telling us. Somebody has died in this relationship, in this marriage to the law. And so the rule of law applies to us as long as we are alive in it. But when we die to it, we're set free. Now, the law demands that the only way that you're going to get to heaven is by being obedient to its commands in perfection. All right? And you've got to stay there. And, and so people are always tiptoeing around the law to make sure that they don't break its commands so that they can get to heaven. That's the whole goal and ob objective here. So be obedient to it. So now he's using this marriage illustration of being under the law system is like being married to a really mean husband who is miserly and abusive and all that and, and, and she wants to get away but she can't leave him when he dies now she's free to go and she's free from that law of marriage and she can marry a good man who's gonna love her right Paul's point is this when you became a Christian you died to the law of sin and death and you're free to marry somebody else matter of fact you're kind of obligated to marry somebody else is what he's telling us you're either going to be connected to that law of sin and death or you're going to be connected to something else he, he reminisced about being a slave to either sin or a slave to righteousness in chapter 6 and so who are we going to marry if we're not going to be married to the law well it's Jesus we, in essence, have a relationship with him. And so he uses this analogy of a wife. And we have a relationship now as our union with Christ. And so we died to our old law, the old master, and we now belong to a new master. I think we also need to look at what this does not mean. It does not mean that we are free from any and all law codes. It doesn't set you free just to do what you want or you're free from any obligation to obey the law's commands as they apply to us even today in a new covenant era. The law commands, they are good. And so Paul's going to tell us in verse 12 of chapter 7, he's going to write, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
And as Romans chapter 6 makes very clear to us that even as Christians, we're still slaves. We are slaves to God, we're slaves to obedience, and we're slaves to righteousness. Paul's marriage illustration shows that we are a widow who reunites herself with a new husband, which is Jesus Christ. And he uses the word upandros which means you're under a man or you're under a husband, signifying that now we are in a marriage relationship with Jesus. What it does mean is that we are free from the law system. You no longer have to be perfect in observance of the law to get into heaven. That system of righteousness is gone. First off, it was gone because you blew it, and I blew it. But second, it's gone because we live under a new system, and it's called the system of grace. He's provided a whole new way for us to get to heaven without having to be obedient to the very letter of the law because he was obedient to it. And he offers up his sacrifice for us, and the gift of his grace enables us now to find a relationship with him in heaven. Now, this facet of how the law works would not be a problem if we could live the perfect life. But we can't. We all struggle with this. But it's not that we're just under law's commandments. If we want to stay with the law and not with Jesus, then we're also under the law's penalties. It's, it's condemnations. And we've got to accept them as well. All right? So let's look at the characteristics that we might have in this freedom from the law. Verses 5 and 6. First thing we notice is that we are free from the law's passions. And so verse 5 tells us, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, the word passions has an interesting meaning to it. The word pathema has two ways that we can interpret it in the Scripture, in the Greek language. The first one basically means suffering. It's pain. It's, it's, it's an injury. It's, it's a suffering, uh, a long suffering, all right? The second way that we can interpret it is that with the aspect of lusts or passions, when we think of it in the aspect of, of suffering, and this is how it's used most often in the New Testament, it refers to the suffering or the pain maybe that Jesus went through. Now, we've got a movie called The Passion of the Christ, right? And, and it really is, is it the passion that he loves us? Or is it the passion, when we think about it, it's that final week and all the pain that he went through. His passion for us was a tormenting passion. It's a passion that put him through pain, that he was willing to do that. Have you ever loved something or someone so much that it hurt because you didn't have it? Right? That's this pain that's going on there. But the other way of interpreting it is this aspect of lust or passions or desires. So Paul speaks about our sinful lusts and passions in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, when he says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
And in chapter 1 of Romans, he speaks specifically about these passions and desires that moved us from a relationship with God into a relationship of sin to where he finally just turns us loose and says, okay, do what you want. He says, for this reason, in Romans 1.26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, the same word, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that were are contrary to nature. And here in 7.5, he is specifically referring to our sinful desires, our sinful passions, our sinful lusts. And these are sinful. Inwardly desires that we have and the inclinations uh, that we have to sin, and they engage us then into behavior that is contrary to God, God wants us to live. So he tells us in verse 5 that we are in the flesh. So to be in the flesh means that we are controlled by what my physical body wants. And I do whatever it desires. I find ways to satisfy it. Maybe that desire is thirst. And so I will do anything to get something to drink, right? I remember, I remember when I was in, in high school, and we used to sell those candy bars uh, for our band, you know, and, and, and the way it was was, you know, all these kids, man, they have got to have the candy bar, and they will do anything. Even if they don't have a dollar on them to buy it, I'll do anything for you, you know. Just let me have a candy bar. That's this passion he's talking about. In the flesh, we're trying to satisfy what is at work in our bodies, and what that does is it bears fruit of sin, which ultimately leads to death. It's the opposite of what our body really wants, isn't it? But this is what happens upon it. So to be in the flesh as we were before we put our faith in Jesus and were baptized into his death and resurrection, it means to be governed by our bodily desires in such a way that they are the central focus of our lives. We do everything to satisfy it. And so we will indulge without regard in breaking moral boundaries to satisfy ourselves. But that was our pre-Christian state. Instead of being controlled by our bodies, Paul says we are now controlled by the Spirit. Our bodies don't control us, but we control them. Now, he tells us that these passions were actually aroused or stimulated or in, incited within us by the law. So verse 7 and 9 through 9, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You catch what he's selling to us here? Very often in the sinful heart, just knowing something is wrong that we shouldn't do something, drives us to do it even more. And it makes it attractive somehow. And it makes it desirable and pleasurable when we're told you can't do something. 
then we've got to try and push ourselves to that limit, don't we? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 17 says, Stolen water is sweet, right? And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Why is stolen water so sweet? Well, when you're told we're under a water shortage, you know, and you're not supposed to, well, we just got, it makes us more thirsty, doesn't it? And so we can't wait to satisfy the physical desires. But see, that's not the law's intention. But it always has the potential to lead us there into where we feel we are above the law. We, we have an autonomy about us that we make our own rules. Remember what 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, right? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is lawless. Sin is lawlessness. All right? It creates within us this spirit of rebellion. And, and we see that early on, even in toddlers, don't we? When, when they know they can't do something, and, and, and we've told them no multiple times, and yet they can't wait for the moment when we turn our backs and they're going to go do it. Right? It's because the sin in us drives us to do things for our selfish desires. If there's a rule against something, that just makes us challenge that law all the more. And after the pattern of Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where Adam and Eve were in the garden and Satan kind of appears on the scene, and we see the, the conversation that, that transpires there and the temptation and the commandment, and for that matter, any commandment, that is going to have this misinterpretation that it's going to take away our freedoms and take away our identity and make us seem different, preventing a self-realization as to who we really are, it becomes an occasion then for resentment to the one who's given us that law. As a result of that, we want to overthrow them, don't we? And so we do. We overthrow God in our lives and we try to live ourselves as our own God. But that's not the intention of the law. The law is intended to function like a protective fence to keep us from harm and from danger. Years ago, I remember back in 1999, we took the kids out to Colorado. We went up Pikes Peak beautiful view from up at pike's peak as we're walking around our son decided he was going to go look over this cliff well there's a fence there to keep you from looking over the cliff but what does he do right through it right you know because he's going to see well <clears throat> we as parents are extremely nervous at that point and so i've got to go over the fence <laughs> to get him to bring him back for his own safety. A fence is put there not to keep you from seeing, but to keep you from falling. The law is put there not to keep you from enjoying things, but to keep you from hurting yourself in the process, or even hurting others. That was its intent. And so what it does is it shows us where we have desires that are selfish. 
and it leads us to sin. When we died to Christ, we died to those passions. It doesn't mean that they no longer exist because they're always there, but it means, however, that we now have the power to control those passions, not on our own, but because He's given us His Spirit that helps us control those passions. So, secondly, we're also not only free from His passions, but we're also free from the penalty of law. Remember, law has two parts. First is the command, something you're supposed to do or not do. But the second part to the law is the penalty. It's the consequence when you don't obey it. We are now free from the penalty of the law because of what Jesus has done for us. This penalty is death. And in Romans chapter, chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, he says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Law, sin, and death. You might classify that as the unholy trinity. Those things work together for our demise, okay? And it dominates and controls everybody who has not found a saving relationship with Jesus. Now go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 9. And Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead will never die again, and so death no longer has any dominion over him. And then he says in verse 14 there, 6, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And finally here in 7.1 he says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. So, here's what we're told. When the law is in control of your life, so is sin and death. And you can't escape that. But Paul wants us to understand, as Christians, we have been set free, not only from the law's passions, but from its penalties as well. Because we have been united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection, when we were baptized into Him and what He has done, that's what it means to be justified. He's going to tell us in Romans 8.1, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The penalty's gone. It's erased. So we've lost the, pas the passion and we've lost the penalty, but there's another thing that we lose when we are united with Christ. We are free from the law's pressure. And now we're released from the law, he tells us in 7.6, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. When I think of being under the law, and, and I think of Romans chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, I, I think of the pressure that we've got to live under within that circumstance. Those who do not know grace live under a pressure of obedience each and every day that they cannot slip up. Consider what it's like to be a Muslim and desire heaven. 
I went online and, and did some research a little bit this week. And there's a book called The Bridge of Sarat. And within it, this is what they teach to the Muslims about how they can get to heaven. All right? Let me read to you a portion out of it. Okay, they are taught that in order to reach the entrance of heaven, each person must cross a long bridge that spans the fires of hell. And they must do their best not to fall into that pit. It says, the bridge of Surat is thinner than a strand of hair. You've got to walk it. It is sharper than the edge of a sword. And it has been placed on the back of hell. Only the person who is weak and anxious due to the fear of Allah will succeed in crossing the bridge. Whoever remains steadfast upon the straight path in this lifetime will easily get salvation on the day of judgment. And whoever drifted away from the straight path in the world and took with him heavy burden of disobedience and sins, as soon as he places his first step on the bridge of Sarat, he will immediately slip and fall. Oh, weak person. Just imagine and visualize the time when you will see the narrowness of the bridge of Surat. You'll be immensely terrified. You will see the horrifying darkness of the hellfire beneath you. The fearsome sound of the hellfire will be heard, and the awful sound of the rising flames of hellfire will reach your ears. Just imagine. At that time, you will tremble with fear and terror. Remember, you will have to cross the bridge at Sarat at any cost, even if you are anxious, afraid, tired, and have a heavy burden. Just imagine, it goes on, you will be made to step on the bridge of Sarat unwillingly. When taking the first step, you will feel its terrible sharpness, but still, you'll have to take another step. You will see that the people will be slipping, tripping, and falling straight into the fire of hell. You will see angels pulling people into the fire of hell with terrifying iron hooks and curved rods. You will see and hear people screaming and crying whilst falling into the fire of hell on their faces. Think, what will be your condition in such a fearful situation? What will happen to you if your feet slip? At that time, your shame and regret will certainly not be beneficial to you. Your crying, screaming, and howling will not save you from being destroyed and ruined forever. At that time, you will be saying, I used to fear this day. I wish I had performed good deeds and acted upon the sunnah, which the sunnah is the personal example of Muhammad for the preparation of the afterlife. I wish I had obeyed the noble prophet and followed his way. And one should remain very sad, remembering the terror and extreme fear of the bridge of Surat during the traumatizing conditions of Judgment Day. Only the people who may have remained concerned and afraid about these matters in the world will be saved. Wow. That's what I'm talking about, pressure. The pressure of the law to get into heaven by obeying every single step of commandment that's made. 
The only thing we have is fear that maybe I messed up some point. This is what the world has to go through. And it is impossible against all odds. Under the law system, we know that we are under an enormous amount of pressure to live the best possible life in order to be saved. And we live in constant fear that we may have blown it. And then what? When judgment day comes, that is how the law system lords it over people. The sinner knows he's under lost penalty, so he feels under the pressure to, to live a better life in order to make up for the sins that he, so he can be good enough to get into heaven. But you're never going to be good enough to get into heaven. I think there are a lot of Christians who live this way too. That they don't really understand the grace of God, that they think that they still have to keep a record of everything they do right. And they're trying to tally up all the good points that I've attended church every Sunday for the past 60 years, that I brought my Bible every day with me. I even invited friends to church with me on Sunday, you know. I, I, I quit cussing. I quit doing this. We, we try to judge ourselves by the law, and we, we underestimate the power of grace. God is viewed primarily as a lawgiver, and the law is the whip in his hand in which keeps us in line. And our immediate concern each day is to find out how we can quit breaking the law and be obedient. But see, that is not where we are as Christians. Our primary motivation is not to avoid sin so that we can get to heaven. We obey the law not because we have to because we want to. We are like slaves or serfs who have been given a quota for the day to fill. And so we need to make sure we do all these things right. That's not what grace is about. But yet we try to be legalistic even after grace. And that pressure generates this legalism and self-motivation for obedience with such motives, one is obeying the law as an unwilling slave obeys his hated master, conforming to it because he has to, not because he is free from the heart, as Paul has told us. Knowing that we are saved by grace, not about how good we are, removes all that pressure. Because even in Christ, you're going to blow it. That's just who we are. But we are still duluo, dulos, servants, slaves. And if we are now free to obey God's commands from the motive of love, John 14, 15 says this, If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Did you catch that? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Romans six seventeen says, But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves to sin had become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Our obedience comes from our willing and eager heart, not from the external constraints that have been placed upon us so that we have to be obedient. We have this new understanding of what grace is all about. We are free, 
but we're free to obey. And that's important. This change from our old understanding of our primary relationship with God as one of law to our new understanding of our relationship of one of grace results in a major change in our motivation for keeping the law. Now it's no longer forced upon me because penalties are going to come. But now I want to be obedient. I get to be obedient. I desire to do what is right to glorify Him. Not so that He glorifies in the fact that I'm good. We are free from the law that brings sin and death. And we live our lives faithful to Him. So let me sum it up this way. We're still slaves. The Christian life is still a bondage of a kind. The master we serve is Jesus Christ, who loves us. Matter of fact, who gave Himself up for us. Who suffered in His physical body so that we can have this freedom from the law of sin and death. Isn't that somebody that you would want to honor in the way that you live today? You see, the Christian life is serving the risen Christ. And in and with the power of His Spirit, we live. We conquer death. Not by our own merit, but by what He has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful that His obedience to You and to the law and His gift of His own life as a sacrifice for us to take our penalty, Father, that we can then enjoy the grace that is offered. What a blessing it is to know Your love is so powerful. Father, then we ask that you would help us to live lives of faithfulness and obedience to you. Not because we have to prove to people we're Christians, but because we love what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.